Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about the city's recently launched auto and retail theft task force, a Portland resident survey that's tracked our most common concerns, and a city contractor that's been overcharging victims of theft and vandalism. Joining me today are Oregonian City Hall reporter Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh and our very own lead producer, John Atariani. It's Friday, August 4th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Shane, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. It is an absolute delight to be hanging out with the two of you. Well, before we start the headlines, uh, I like to ask a question just so people who are listening know who's on the show today and they kind of know what to expect from us. Uh, This question I have will be in the style of Kiss, Mary Kill, Thrupple. I I added that last part, Shane, because uh, Portland. Whoa. Yeah. And John, you might want to write these options down. Last time I, we I, did this, <laughs> John couldn't hold them all in his head and it really I, confused I, I, I'm me. at my keyboard to write notes. Yeah, I'm ready to go this time. <laughs> all right. You're going to get four options. This is uh, in reference to our our uh, Oregon the, is the creator of the tater tot. The inventor of the tater tot is a show we had uh, earlier this week. And so I'm. it made me curious about uh, the potato products and uh, mm. what you guys would kiss, Mary kill, thruple. So we have, of course, the tater tot, the JoJo, the curly fry, and the waffle fry. Ooh, okay. I know. I'm sorry. With the curly fries, are they seasoned or not, like Cajun style? Okay, let's. Ooh, that's a good idea. You know, I feel like if we start throwing seasoning on one of them, it's mm. unfair. So let's say all of them, salt and pepper. I do think that the JoJo, though, by its very sort of core nature, is a seasoned potato wedge. That is true. But we can we can say like consistently seasoned across the board. Okay. Consistently seasoned okay. to great, your great, liking. Great. To like take out that as a variable. Oh, okay. So you want to say that? Okay. If you so if you like a, a Cajun curly fry, that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, season, okay. but like same seasoning, all four. And okay. just one other, one other thing, Claudia. Of just, course, I love just, this, Shane. Just for cl- <laughs> just for clarification, uh-huh. in your experience throwing out this sort of prompt with "kiss, marry, kill, thruple," what exactly do you see the difference between being marrying and thrupling? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Shane, because there is a reasoning behind this. Okay, so marry is the you know who you're going to marry. Your partner in life, maybe you met them first. Hmm? Maybe you met them first. Thruple, they're the person who adds to that relationship, and they they have to get along because you're a thruple. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I got this one. Okay. So, like, pretty clear in my mind. Uh, bottom of the list is the JoJo, going to kill a JoJo. <gasps> um oh. I mean, we have to make hard decisions every day in these conversations, but like, I just feel like a JoJo has a tendency to be too starchy, like too much potato-ness in it. Um, You get like halfway through a JoJo sometimes and it's a little bit dry. You're just like, oh, too much JoJo. So gotta go. Um, Kiss, waffle fry, kind of wacky, like lots of fun, but not an everyday sort of situation. Um, I think I am going to marry the tater tot. I mean, for all of the reasons. Iconic, Oregon-made, delicious, just like solid, compact, um, very, very tasty. And then thruple with the curly fry. The way I'm thinking about this is uh, 
also Oregon invented, but like curly fry and the tot like are kind of like a yin yang in terms of potato shape. One goes in a spiral. One is sort of like a, a compacted thing. It just seems like they would get along really well. They would just like um, be able to coexist very easily. And I love them both. So that's my list. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful response. Shane, I expect no less. Oh, dang it. I was actually <laughs> going to ask if you expected me to be as thorough and as thoughtful as John on this question. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to start with Mary and we're going to go with Jojo on Mary. Wow. Solid. Okay. Jojo is like a first potato love for a lot of kids who grew up in Oregon, especially um, in the part of town of Eugene that I grew up in, spending a lot of time uh, eating food out of uh, the sort of hot dishes at uh, sort of uh, spit and sawdust convenience stores or going to Albertsons or Safeway. I mean, I just have so many connections. I mean, it's like falling in love with the, with the person next door. So Jojo, I'm going to marry. Okay. Absolutely. 100%. So... If, if we got to kill something, I don't want to kill any of these potato products because I really do. I love them all, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pull the trigger on the tater tot. <gasps> yeah. I just, all right. it, and, and only because I have to kill one of them and I mm -hmm. don't know, this is a, this is a devil's bargain and I don't like it at all. In terms of, <laughs> in terms of kiss, curly fry. Absolutely. Mm. I, I mean, there is just something just sort of seductive in, in, in the, the, the appearance and the look and the slenderness and the twists and turns. You know, there's something very, I don't know, alluring and seductive. So we'll go with Kiss and then Thrupple. I mean, Waffle Fry. Absolutely. If I'm, I'm, if I'm married to Jojo, we're going we're, we're gonna to bring in the Waffle Fry as, uh, as a third for sure. Wow. No questions. So it's beautiful. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to kiss a tater tot. I'm going to marry a Jojo. So Shane, we're going to fight for that one there. I'm going to kill a waffle fry. I just, mm. I'll be honest. I don't get it. And then I'm going to thruple that curly fry because for mm. all the reasons Shane just described perfectly, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if I could say anything else about the curly fry, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it just goes to show that, like, there's love out there for everyone. And, like, yeah. I want you guys to be happy with your JoJo. Like, I'm really, I'm really happy for you, too. Oh, thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> this is John who killed the JoJo. Well, uh, thanks for playing, Shane. Uh, appreciate your effort there. Uh, would you start us off with your headline of the week? What I'm going to talk a little bit about today is the recent creation and launch of a pair of task forces focused on some of the most persistent and uh, bedeviling property crimes in Portland over the last few years, and that is retail theft and also car theft the persistence of these crimes have been increasing for quite some time, but it was only recently that, uh, that local leaders in law enforcement and in government sort of led, uh, at least in terms of press conferences by our current district attorney, Mike Schmidt, uh, decided to, uh, that they were going to make this big announcement that they were going to invest new resources into creating, or in fact, bringing back, because there had been 
these types of task forces in the past in Multnomah County and the city of Portland to really put uh, more money and resources behind having prosecutors that were devoted exclusively to these types of crimes and also to have investigators that would work with the, with the DA investigators that were going to help um, focus on these crimes more intensely to try to build more and better cases uh, to, to actually bring these to prosecution because what we've seen in the past and the data shows us that A, both of these types of crimes have gone up uh, dramatically in the last few years. However, the number of actual cases brought by Portland police or other law enforcement in Multnomah County to the DA's office to even consider prosecuting these crimes has taken a huge nosedive. And then what we always see uh, with criminal cases is uh, only a percentage of cases brought by law enforcement actually end up getting prosecuted by the DA's office. And I want to say with either, I think it's with auto theft last year, even though there are 11,000 reported auto thefts, I think only about 900 cases were brought to the DA's office for prosecution. Insane, yeah. And then of those, the, the DA's office only pursued about half of them. So mm. anyway. Do you, do you know why? Just real quick. You know, we had Mike Schmidt on. Uh, that show's not going to air for a, a handful of days. Uh, but, you know, we spoke to him and it was hard to understand why. Why less than 10% of the, of the cases uh were actually prosecuted. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If we had an hour to talk okay. just about that question, <laughs> uh, we, we could we could eat up all the time just talking about that. But I think I'll try to be brief in this explanation. So to, both in terms of auto thefts and retail thefts specifically, I mean these cases have to be built with sufficient probable cause, and that gets pretty tricky pretty fast. With let's say an actual vehicle theft. If you've got a person in a car, uh, driving a car that doesn't belong to them, can you actually prove that they're the person, uh, they're the, the ones who actually stole the vehicle, right? Like right, that, right. That, that, that becomes an issue right off the bat. And there's some other sort of technicalities with auto theft. With retail theft, I mean, they're, they, that's, a, that's a huge issue. Uh, issue to sort of unpack. I mean, one of the things is that a lot of retail chains have actually, when push comes to shove, it has not been worth the, their, their time or their effort to actually participate. Either their store security won't try to stop, you know, suspected shoplifters. And then even when they do, they don't necessarily par uh, participate in a prosecution because of just the, the, the time and the energy that it will eat up, or they have an actual explicit policy against working on criminal cases involving their shoplifters. It's kind of bizarre. And it's something that's extreme. I know it's frustrated the heck out of uh, Portland City Hall and also prosecutors in the DA's office and DA Mike Schmidt, who I think kind of behind the scenes is trying to lobby and pitch more businesses to be so it's basically saying we want to actually try to bring cases against some of these crimes, but we need you to work with us on these. And mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's sort of a delicate balance. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Shane, because the reason I asked specifically is I wanted somebody else to say it. <laughs> I wanted someone who's been reporting on this for a bit now. And when we had 
you know, uh, the DA on, he could only say so much. He can only say so much from his perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And he shared that. But I feel like it's important to note that a lot of these issues aren't just, oh, the police aren't doing their job. Oh, the DA doesn't have enough prosecutors. It's that evidence. It's the it's the lack of evidence. It's the lack of of being able to work with certain with uh, certain companies, like you said, who um, aren't ready to prosecute because it's just too much. It's too much effort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I think that that sort of gets to why I like these twin task forces as a policy idea, right? Because as we've been talking about, it is kind of hard to unravel what's going on with crime in the city, but like clearly, it is on people's minds. Um, as we'll get to in my story when we turn the corner, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of concern about crime, but there is this question of perception versus reality, right? Um, and I, I have this suspicion that there's a lot of people that sort of see the physical landscape of the city, um, but aren't necessarily focused on the crimes that are actually happening. And I think that focusing in on these two issues, retail theft and auto theft, and really making a pointed agenda to try and like cause a dent in the problem um, is like both smart because it's going to help people and it like looks good. It's going to create something to point to, hopefully, if this works out over the long term, as opposed to just feeling like crime is this monolithic problem across the region. No, ab you know, absolutely. And again, I think so much within kind of the public safety space in Portland over the last few years, whether you're talking about police or the DA's office, uh, there, uh, and to some extent, rightly so, the, the emphasis and the focus has largely had to be around uh, violent crime, sh shootings and homicides uh, escalating as quickly as they have in the last three years. That That is where the time, attention, resources are going to go. But at the same time, we've also seen this explosion of these lower level property crimes, which really, you know, strike at the core of the city's perceived livability, their mm -hmm. livability issues, and they matter to folks in a, in a very sort of meaningful way. Before we move on, Shane, do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about or add? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the just just the final thing and j just on the the, the creation of these task forces and I'll and I'll again try to be relatively brief on this but clearly there were a lot of uh, political considerations as well when this whole thing came together and again it wasn't coming <laughs> and I'm kind of laughing about it because it wasn't coming uh, from our city and elected leaders coming up with this idea believe it or not which sort of what? begs a which kind of begs a question a little bit like yeah. why i mean this wasn't something that magically came out of mike schmidt's head or at the city of portland but in fact it was another very influential group and one of the most powerful organizations in the city, the Portland Metro Chamber, formerly the Portland Business Alliance, and specifically their vice president, John Isaacs, is essentially the person who thought of this idea or the, the sort of the, the initial idea behind this or the energy was kind of looking at sort of two different political potential political problems that two elected officials faced. Namely, you had a progressive district attorney who's been labeled as soft on crime throughout his entire time in office, 
and not just political issues, because obviously there needed to be more work done on car thefts and retail theft. But you also have a, a district attorney who's going to face a tough reelection going into an election year. And you also had a new member of the Portland City Council, Rene Gonzalez, who one of his main uh, campaign ideas was essentially creating a city municipal court, bringing back this idea to essentially look at low level crimes that the DA's office was no longer prosecuting. However, the creation of a municipal court by the city was was completely non-realistic. It's a non-starter. It was going to take years. It was going to cost millions of dollars. And so the idea was this could be uh, a something that could actually address a fundamental concern among Portland residents and businesses, but also this would be a way for both the district attorney and for uh, Rene Gonzalez to sort of deliver on some of their own promises. So anyway, I really appreciated that background uh, because the way it's been painted is like, you know, Mike Schmidt finally is doing this thing. So this is really this is good info um, to have. Yeah. In some ways, it's a little insidery and some of this stuff behind the scenes is kind of irrelevant to how we actually see something like this come together and whether it works or not. But at the same time, I think this also provides just a real a, a real good lens into how shit gets done in Portland sometimes. Oh, Shane. Well, thank you for that. Uh, all right, let's take a little break here. And when we return, more headlines of the week. Well, John, what is your headline this week? Yeah, you know, talking about crime and perceptions of crime. Uh, I'm sort of right looped in with that as well as with Shane's reporting because this is another story that he put out this week. Uh, thank you, Shane, about this new survey that was put out earlier this week by the Portland City Budget Office uh, working with Portland State University. Uh, talked with 5,300 residents across the city uh, giving special attention to underrepresented populations. And uh, they said that the three big issues that are on people's minds in Portland are homelessness, affordability, and crime. Um, no big surprises there. I think that we probably all could have guessed that that's what is on people's <laughs> minds if anyone's opened a newspaper or turned on the radio. Um, but overall, they said 45% of the people surveyed said homelessness was the city's most pressing problem. 22% said it was cost of living and another 20% public safety. Um, and there's an extraordinary amount of data here, though. And I think it's really interesting once you sort of dig in and look at some of the uh, disparities in terms of where people live in the city and how they respond. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like interesting stuff there that I'd love to get into. But uh, right off, I wanted to know what your guys' takes on all this huge set of data was. Shane, I know you spent a lot of time with it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is useful or helpful about this city survey is just the sh sheer volume of participants. Uh, and just so there's a real kind of, tr you know, treasure trove of information here. And I think the other really important thing with what the city of Portland did here in terms of surveying city residents is, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about public opinion surveys or polls, it's usually focused on voters or likely voters. 
And let's think about who are some who are the people in Portland that are not being captured in those types of surveys. We're talking about immigrant communities, refugees, not non-voters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was really interesting in this. They spend a lot of time in the methodology talking about how they went about getting access to people that wouldn't necessarily be captured by a lot of the standard, you know, uh, sort of straw poll political surveys that you get. And and I think it's like really interesting when you start breaking down um, what different groups of people think about different mm-hmm. things. Like on the question of homelessness, right? Like clearly homelessness was above and beyond the major issue. But when you get into the data, more than 50% of white Portlanders say homelessness is the biggest challenge that the city is facing. But if you ask black Portlanders, nearly 40% say it's cost of living. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I think that when you sort of ponder those disparities and how different racial groups, how different economic groups and about how different um, sort of people who live in different regions of the city right. think about it differently, you get such a better picture of, of, of the various ways that people are living in Portland right now. Yeah, I I was really interested, too, in how sort of the answers to these questions differed uh, on racial along racial and ethnic lines but also just city geography where you mm-hmm. live in portland tells you a lot about what the sort of you know collectively what your priorities are or what the what the city's most pressing concerns might be and then also age too you know similarly and i think i pointed this out just in the little roundup i did of the survey that <laughs> uh, that even though for young, for young people, and I think it was 16 to 29, homelessness was still sort of the, mo- the, the, the most pressing issue among those individuals. I mean, cost of living was neck and neck uh, at, at that. And that's just a great reminder of just how uh, much more challenging affordability has become in the city. Yeah, yeah. The question of affordability is just like a ramp downwards. The highest concern with the youngest group down yeah. to when you look at over 75-year-olds, they're not nearly as concerned about the affordability of the city, which to, to me reads like if you, you know, had your career and bought a house, you know, 40 years ago, you're like, yeah, this is great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but you know what I actually think is really interesting that everyone could agree on is that less than a quarter think that the government is effective. <laughs> everyone just <laughs> held hands on that one. Um, was there anything surprising in the survey uh, for you, John, or Shane, who actually wrote the article? <laughs> I, I certainly to to just see the variability again um, when, when you look at sort of the racial and ethnic demographics and sort of how those diverge to some extent. I mean, one of the surprising things, because it, it, I mean, if you're just looking at the little graphs and charts that were provided in the survey, like you can't help but not notice it was just uh Compared to other racial and ethnic groups, the, how high public safety was with Asian folks in particular, mm-hmm. um, it was, I mean, it was just above and beyond. I mean, because I think it was coming in close at like 30% were saying that that was the most important issue and no other sort of demographic category placed it that high. And so... interesting. Yeah, there was yeah. that. And, and then similarly, and I think I lumped this together too... 
public safety with people living in East Portland. Yes. Yes. That, that jumped out to me too. Yeah. I mean, and that was something I spent a great deal of time focused on actually when I was covering um, the city council races last year and in particular the Hardesty Gonzalez race. And I mean, it was a real clear window into why Gonzalez, who really you know, really focused on kind of a quote unquote law and order candidacy, how he performed so well in East Portland because mm-hmm. he was speaking directly. And what we see in this data here really sort of shows just, you know, that is an issue that, I mean, it's an issue citywide, but it's particularly felt with folks who are living east of I 205. In that data, something that jumped out at me was the difference between. North Portland and East Portland, right? Mm-hmm. I think both were a little bit, had higher levels of concern for both safety and um, affordable housing and homelessness than the rest of the city. But North Portland, the residents were much more inclined to be worried about affordable housing and homelessness. Whereas in East Portland, people had a much stronger correlation to be worried about safety. And, and, and to me, that feels like, I hope I'm not extrapolating when I say this, but it does sort of feel like an interesting um, sort of snapshot of what is happening in those two communities um, in in a way that I think is is more different than we often allow ourselves to see or are often able to see when we're just looking at, you know, the news headlines. Well, um, I want to move on to my headline of the week just because it there's I feel like we have a theme going on uh, this this Friday. So I love themes, by the way. <laughs> well, is can the you theme, ex- is the theme potato pro- products, or the did I theme, miss the theme? The theme is definitely JoJo's. Um, <laughs> no, so my headline this week also comes from the Oregonian. Uh, it was reported by Maxine Bernstein. Uh, the yeah. headline is what the headline says it all. Really, contractor overcharged Portland property owners for boarding up broken windows, doors, report fines. Which already I was like, whoa, because guys. Can you walk down any street without seeing something boarded up? And I just immediately thought of all, you know what I mean? I was like, is this a grift? Like, I couldn't believe that people at their lowest were getting gouged. Um, So under the city contract, 911 dispatchers call in the board up company at the request of police when an owner isn't available or can't do the work themselves. So like, if anything gets smashed at three in the morning, they can't find who the person who, you know, isn't in charge of the establishment, They're, this contractor goes out. And this contractor in question is is Stanley C. Kennedy Enterprises, uh, which is doing business as 1-800-BOARD-UP. And already, how, like, just, <laughs> would you call 1-800-BOARD-UP? I would never call 1-800-BOARD-UP. I mean, I I would call 1-800-BOARD-UP because when when your windows get smashed, that is like the most brain-fryingly frustrating time. (laughs) And you just reach for the easiest thing. Like, what is the closest thing that's going to fix this problem for me? Mr. Board-UP? Yes, I'll call Mr. Board-UP. Oh, my God. Which is why it's so infuriating to me. I tried to think of lots of smart things to say about this, but I only have like anger and frustration. (laughs) Go on, Claudia. Well, well, this means that sometimes, of course, that the owner of whatever establishment got hit um, didn't have a choice of 
of who was doing their work. So they're going to have to go through 1-800-BOARD-UP because, again, the city contracts them. Um, and in the end, it was found out that 1-800-BOARD-UP was overcharging victims of this type of vandalism about $150 per customer, more than the city had ne like negotiated with them through their contract. And this led to at least $142,000 in unwarranted billings for about, like uh, I think the number that Maxine pulled out was 900 50 emergency board ups from July 2019 uh, through 2022. And this, just so you know, this report came from the, it, and I don't know if I'm, correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, the Ombudsman's office, which is Ombudsman. the first time. Oh, yeah. Say that again, Shane? Ombudsman. Ombudsman, which is the first time I've ever heard of this city outpost. Shane, do you know anything about the Ombudsman? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. The, the city Ombudsman uh is a, uh, the ombudsman's office is a division within the elected city auditor's office mm -hmm. and they focus specifically on these types of things involving potential uh, potential potential conflicts or fraud or misuse within city government itself. So they actually they're the ones, uh, and I don't know, John or Claudia, if you're aware that we there is a fraud hotline number with the city of Portland. And so, for instance, if people call in a report of potential city fraud or allegations, those types of uh, tips and reports get in investigated by the ombudsman's office. And then they also do other types of investigations as well, involving city government and potential malfeasance. It's okay. So uh, this review uh, that the ombudsman's office did, uh, the review found confusion among city officials, including the police bureau, uh, the city procurement office, community safety division, and the city attorney's office about responsibility for managing this contract. So the police responding to the vandalism scenes were improperly telling owners that they could get a better deal by working directly with a company and cutting out the city. Which, who, ah, meaning they were not negotiating out of the city contract. So 100 board up could like theoretically jack up the prices. And um, of course, they didn't say anything. 1-800-BOARD-UP um, didn't say anything about their existing contract to any of their customers. And of course, immediately, guys, and this is, I'm saying this again. This is not Shane. This is not John. This is my conspiracy theory. Immediately, I was like, if this is Gotham City, why are the cops doing this? Are they getting 50 bucks ahead? What's going on here? Like, why would you say that? <laughs> why would you think that? You know? Well, um, not, not only that, but the police are telling these property crime victims that if they don't go through the city, they're going to get a better deal when, in fact, the complete opposite occurs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's just bananas. The, the other thing, I mean, and this is totally beside the point, but I didn't realize this, is that, like, so basically... If I own a business or a house and a window gets broken out and I'm not there to like board it up myself, the city is able to just pay this company to go in and board it up. Um, and then is, bill you for nice. it. But then, then bill, bill me plus 15% to the city as an administrative fee. Like, it's, like yes. the logical part of my brain is like, well, yes, there is an administrative cost to doing this. But like the sort of emotional part of my brain is like, what the fuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, th that was one of the surprising parts to this story as well is, is this whole idea that the city will just make the decision for you, not even with your consent. They make the determination that, oh, the the owner's not here or they can't respond quickly, but we got to get this thing boarded up ASAP. So mm -hmm. 
we're going to we're going to provide this service and then make you pay for it. Yeah. Plus and, 15% to the sales. Yes. Oh, such a oh. Okay, anyhow, so according to Maxine's article, Gabriel Smith, a representative from 1800 Boardup, um so 1800 Boardup said the company wasn't overcharging but then declined to further comment. So yeah, 100% cleared up. Hey, are you guys overcharging? Was we're not. Yeah. Click. I mean, what? Yeah. Sorry. I hope more comes from this, but I just love that. I just I love that entire just uh just train of reasoning. No. We're good. I I I think the thing that I, I want to pay a little bit more attention to, and it was noted in Maxine's story, and this mm-hmm. came out, I was actually out of town last week when this report came out, so I didn't catch up on it until this week, and obviously was equally parts uh, entertained and horrified. But uh, this the city's contract with this company is up for renewal in September, so a month from now, and... I'm going to be very interested to see if the city re-ups its contract with one eight hundred board up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also what, something I failed to mention, um, and this is like a nonprofit said this that a one eight hundred board up representative, like when this nonprofit basically was like, "Hey, this is five hundred. It was like over five hundred dollars for their service." They're like, "That seems steep to just be like you know putting up some plywood over this glass door." Um, what, is there anything I could do? You know, should I go to the city? Like what? And and the representative told the non- nonprofit if they didn't pay the company directly, they would face a higher bill from the city, which adds the administrative fee for the work. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sad to say that throughout my two and a half, almost three years as the Oregonian City Hall reporter, things that you would hope would be just naked corruption (laughs) nine times out of 10 um, in my experience turns out to be sort of the more benign thing, which is either incompetence, miscommunication, (sighs) misunderstanding. It, it is one of those things that continues to sort of shock and surprise me with how often that ends up being just the explanation for your many people's, what the fuck is going on reaction to something. Mm -hmm. Maybe Um, this is why 25% of Portlanders. (laughs) Maybe maybe this is why nearly half of the respondents uh, strongly disagree (laughs) or disagree that Portland is a city where everyone can succeed and thrive, regardless of their identity. Unless the say they think the city government is effective. (laughs) And I'll I'll tell you yesterday, so this that that city survey that we were discussing went before the city council. Like there's a whole presentation from PSU and the city budget office to the mayor and city commissioners. And Ted Wheeler's response to the 25 percent effective city government was, I'm surprised that 25 percent of people said it was effective. (laughs) Actually got a couple of laughs from the from people at the meeting. They're like, yay, cool. You don't believe in it either. (laughs) That's great. So So good. Well, um, as it normally normally happens, uh, I'm really depressed now. Um, Yes. At the end of these Friday roundups, does anyone have anything fun to share before we wrap up? Maybe maybe the three of us collectively can just say the word ohm. (laughs) (laughs) Ohm. So you're, what you're suggesting is that 
what's going to write is that is we're just going to we're just going to close our eyes and and do a little bit of of um, meditation. Yeah, some intention, not? putting out some intention in the world that yeah. maybe some of this incompetence and this miscommunication clears up. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I believe but, in that. Nothing but loving kindness. Mm. Oh, that's nice, Shane. I like that. All right. Mm. We'll, we'll leave on that note. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, John. And thank you so much, Shane, for hanging out with me today. All right. Thanks, Claudia. Yeah, it, was, it was a real scream. Thanks, Claudia. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. Our lead producer is John Natariani. Our audio producers this week were Julia Fioni and Natalie Rivera. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Stephen Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound. We'll be back Monday morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>